Okay, Exodus 27. Um, There we go. So this is, if you remember, this is the last part of Exodus, most of which deals with the tabernacle, 13 out of the last 16 chapters. We're in the third of those. And just a reminder from a few weeks ago when we we were on chapter 25 that that there, there are two reasons that Sarna gives, and I think he's right about this, that for the construction of the tabernacle. One is as a symbol of God's continuing presence with the people of Israel. Uh, We've talked a little bit about that the last couple of weeks that we've met. And also uh, to accommodate the organized practice of religion. So we are covering about a chapter a week. Um, And so chapter 27, um, we'll just review real quickly from the last two sessions because they're really all part of one long speech by God to Moses, one long set of instructions from chapter 25 goes clear till chapter 30, uh, verse 10. So uninterrupted, um, God speaking to Moses about the uh, tabernacle and how to construct it. So uh, remember that the tabernacle is a portable sanctuary. It's a tent, essentially. Um, and, God, and God is telling Moses how he is to to build it. So, last or a couple times ago when we met, we saw these things, these four things. Chapter twenty-five breaks nicely into those four parts. Um, you, but but the main thing to notice is when when God sends sends out sets out to give instructions for the tabernacle, He begins by the, with the things in it um, before He. Before he tells Moses how to build the tent, he tells him the most important thing that's in there, which is the Ark of the Covenant, and then the two things that are in the holy place, and that's in chapter 25. Uh, In chapter 26, then, how to actually build the tent, how to build the tabernacle, Um, and again, that chapter broken nicely into four parts. The ESV doesn't reflect that, uh, but the Hebrew Bible does, and and it's really four parts. And as we saw last time, the tabernacle, the the layout of it, probably what we've learned so far is probably about like this. Um, This is the, it's about 15, the Holy of Holies is about 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet. It's a cube. Um, And then the rest of it is another 30 feet by 15 feet. Um, And so if you remember the Holy of Holies, The priests didn't even get to go into that except the high priest um, on the Day of Atonement. And it starts off with with God meeting with Moses there. And after he is not there anymore, then the high priests uh, entered into the Holy of Holies. Um, Priests, though, did enter regularly into the holy place to take care of the lamp, to keep the lamp burning that is there. And that lampstand is there. That's the menorah. Um, And so... Uh, the tabernacle may have looked something like this. It's got it's it's a tent, like I mentioned. It's got four layers. The bottom two layers appear to hang to follow the shape of the of the cube and the 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 shape of the rectangle, where the top two layers probably were more like we think of a tent, stretched out, protecting 
um, with a couple of different kinds of skins, ram skins and, and some other kind of skin, um, like a dolphin or porpoise, possibly. <clears throat> um, and so now we're moving on to the next, next phase or the next part of this, and this is, again, continuing on. It's not like it's starting a new section, really. It's, it's one unbroken set of instructions from, from the Lord to Moses. And so now we're going to move into things, some more furnishes, furnishings for the tabernacle, and specifically the, the area outside the tabernacle, mostly. So uh, the ESV has chapter 27 broken into three parts, um, and those, are, those really reflect what's, what's going on in the chapter. They're good breaks, and so we'll even use the ESV headings here if you have the, an ESV Bible, the first um, eight verses are about the bronze altar. Uh, The next uh, 11 verses are about the court, the outside, the courtyard of the tabernacle. And then the the last part, the last couple of verses about oil for that lamp that's in the holy place, uh, for keeping that lamp burning. So you can see here that of these of these three, two of them really deal with something outside of the tabernacle, the first two, um, and then oil for the lamp, something that's going to be used inside uh, the tabernacle in the holy place. And so that's what, just a reminder, that's what we saw last time. So that lamp is inside the lampstand there, the Ark of the Covenant is in the Holy of Holies, um, and that here again is that diagram. So outside of that, outside of the tabernacle, there is a courtyard. So now we've shrunk down the tabernacle here and got a pretty good to scale um, sketch of or layout of the tabernacle inside the courtyard. So the courtyard is the really light, light tan stuff there. The tabernacle is inside of it. Uh, It's probably laid out like this, looks like it's laid out like this. Um, And this is is quite a bit bigger. Um, The width of it is 75 feet, and the length is 150 feet, which we're going to see. So just as a a point of reference, the width of this room is about 65 feet. So it's a little bit bigger than this room for width, and then longer, it's about 150 feet long long. So just like when, when the Lord gave instructions for building the tabernacle, he didn't start with the tabernacle but with the ark. The most important part or the most important thing in the tabernacle. So now as he moves to the courtyard, uh, he doesn't begin with how to construct the courtyard. He begins instead uh, like with the tabernacle, the most important thing inside the courtyard that's outside of the, of the tabernacle. So the most important thing in this courtyard is what he begins with, which is the altar. So here's the, the bronze altar again. I think it's pretty much to scale. Um, and this is where chapter 27 of, of Exodus begins. So If you haven't yet turned to Exodus 27, go ahead and and turn there. We'll start in in verse verse 1, and we'll 
We'll read through it, make some comments as we go along about these sections, and then we're going to come back to the altar also at the end of the uh, discussion. So, verse 1, you shall make the altar. Now, there's something right there uh, to pay attention to, because uh, it doesn't say, and you shall make an altar. So as you are making the worship space, no, you make the altar. In other words, it, it would be assumed that there would be an altar in a worship space. It was recognized as an important part of worship, and it had been for a really, really, really long time. So the first altar in the Bible is mentioned in uh, Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8 is after after the flood, and I'm going to open to, you can turn there if you want, I'm going to read a few verses from from Genesis chapter 8, but this is after the flood, and, and Noah builds an altar and, and offers up sacrifices. So when I, when I was in, in seminary, I don't know if you guys knew, but I went to seminary in Sioux Falls, and, and when I took Hebrew, I had a, a Jewish person for um, a, a, an instructor, and, and not really a believing Jewish person uh, as an instructor, but she knew Hebrew. Okay, so, so anyway, she made a big point when we, were, when we were in looking at Genesis to say, God doesn't command Noah to build a, an altar, and he doesn't command him to offer sacrifices. And her implication was that this is something that Noah did on his own without any approval from God that God didn't, wouldn't really have approved of something like offering sacrifices. Well, I'll read these verses to me and see if that makes sense to you. Uh, this, is, this is Genesis 8, starting in verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention, probably even though the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth, neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Well, it seems like God was okay with that, with that sacrifice. When you, when you read what you find in, in Genesis chapter 8. So there are many other altars built um, and sacrifices offered, uh, by, implied that sacrifices were offered as well from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob uh, in Genesis. And, and Moses has already built an altar in another place. Um, when, it, when they're at Sinai, um, and if you remember, that's when he splashes the blood on the people. It's, it's, it's an altar that he makes, uh, offers sacrifices at the time that the covenant, covenant is made 
Okay, so that, that just brings up a question of what is an altar? Okay, so this morning we, we sang a song, um, the song, I have it right here. It says, Oh, come to the altar. Um, I'll refer back to that later. Uh, we, don't, we don't have an altar in our church building. Um, many of you know that, that before this was First Evangelical Free Church, there was, there was a church called Westside Evangelical Free Church in Sioux Falls. Smaller church, much smaller, but it seemed big. It seemed like a big, a big space. But in that, in that, that structure, um, the front of the building, uh, there was an elevated platform. Uh, there was a choir loft over on the, on the pastor's right. But in front, on the floor level, was some kind of a cabinet that we called an altar. Right. So. So is that what is that what is meant by an altar here in in Exodus? So what is an altar? Well, the Hebrew word that that, that is used here is based on the word to slaughter or to sacrifice. Um, it, it means in most most likely it originally meant the place of slaughter. So by the time this Exodus was written, it, it, was, it came to mean a, a structure where most of the time animal sacrifices were, were offered on this. But it could also be an altar for incense. So some kind of burning happened on this this altar, either um, burnt offerings or something like incense would be burnt on there. So uh, in, in Exodus 27, this altar that we're talking about now was meant for animal sacrifices. And there were all kinds of sacrifices that, that are detailed um, in the Torah, in the books of Moses, that are to be offered on that altar. Okay, many different kinds. Like uh, we're we're probably think of like a sin offering. That that's just one type. There there's a there are peace offerings. There are guilt offerings. There are grain offerings. There are drink offerings. There are things called whole burnt offerings, uh, a whole bunch of different kinds of sacrifices offered on this altar. So, so this was a busy place, this altar. Uh, it is not like they offered sacrifices once in a while. In fact, we're going to see in a, in a couple of chapters where one of, just one of the kinds of sacrifice was to be offered twice every day, once in the morning, once at night. And that doesn't count all of the other kinds of sacrifices that are going to be offered. So this is a really, really, it's a really, really busy place. It is a recognized and essential part of worship. And its placement in 
the courtyard would indicate that as well. Now, it's not known exactly for sure um, where the altar was, but but there's really good reasoning to, uh, and almost every commentator would agree that that what what I'm going to show you next is the place where that that altar was. And first thing you'll, you'll notice is that that it's it's pretty big when you look in into uh, the size of the courtyard. Uh, one a commentator named Long Longman said the altar was easily accessible, unavoidable, and unmistakable. So it was meant to be seen. It would be the first thing that you saw as you walked into the entrance of the courtyard. Uh, and it was the place for sacrifices. And, and, it, and it wasn't necessarily a pretty place. So this is likely where the bronze altar is. And so how do they come to this conclusion? Well, um, a couple of ways. If you, if you look, so this courtyard again is set up with north on the, south, on, on the top here, the way we have it, south on the bottom, east is on, on the right side, West is the left side, and it was always set up the same way, all the time. Every time when they moved it, they set it up the same way. North was always on the, on the north side, etc. And if you, if you look at this, this tabernacle courtyard, and you, and you cut it in half, east to west, so you um, are from north to south, so you're cutting it into two halves, an east half and a west half. The way this layout is, the Ark of the Covenant is exactly in the middle of the west half, and the altar is exactly in the middle of the right half, of the the east half. And so it it is the most important part, and so it makes sense, especially when you hear what other things that are in there. But but don't forget that the two things that Sarna mentioned that that I said, that this is the tabernacle is made as a, a symbol of God's continued presence with Israel, reflected by the ark, right? That's, that's the place where God meets with Moses. And the altar then, the other thing that Sarna said, was to facilitate essentially orderly religious worship. And the altar was the, was the center of that Worship, organized practice of religion. So the altar is a really, really, really big deal. Back to verse 1. You shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. So remember that a cubit is about a foot and a half. So roughly... The size of the altar would be like half of this platform we're on. Um, so like over there, there's a center line here. You, can, you might be able to see it, but about half of it. Um, and about like this high, right? So it's a, it's, a big, it's a big structure. And remember, the tabernacle, the width of the tabernacle wasn't, or courtyard, wasn't much wider than this room. So it's a big, prominent Thing when you walk into the, the courtyard. 
Now, notice what it's made of, though. This kind of seems funny to me at first. You shall make the altar of acacia wood, and you're going to burn on it, right? Um, sounds like a bad idea. That's probably just because we don't understand. Um, and you shall make horns on it, on its four corners. Its horn shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. So, so what does it mean that it has horns on it? I'm going to show you a, a rendering of it here in a minute. But, but on the four corners, sticking up above the main part of the altar, um, were, were four calls them horns here. Um, I've seen uh, in, the, in the Israel Museum, they have a permanent um, altar that was, so it's not made like this one. It's made out of stone, cut stone, which, so it probably wasn't meant for, for worshiping the Lord the way he uh, prescribed, but it was from Beersheba uh, in Israel. And, and the horns are, it has four horns on the corners, four Things that stick up from the corner, and so it, it's we're not sure exactly what what they mean. But horns in general um, have a symbolic meaning of strength and power. Think of like the horns of an ox, uh, maybe fertility, um, as um, Sarna says. Um, but but also the, in the way that these horns were used. Uh, ends points out that it probably has a redemptive idea here, especially with the with the Jewish practice, uh, because altars all over the place had horns on them. But um, here, the priest was to put blood on the horns of the altar, and so it also probably had a, they also probably had practical purposes in that you could tie. A sacrifice onto uh, onto the altar by the horns, and so it might have looked something like this. There are a lot of renderings out there. You can find these things online, and and there are just quite a quite a few different ways to to um, to, to attempts at trying to to say what this looked like. This is one of those. It me to me looked like as good as as any of them. But you can see what it might have looked like there. So, and I'll explain as we go through. Uh, take a good look at that. I'll show you at the end of the discussion about the altar as well. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes, and shovels and basins and forks and fire pans. You shall make all its utensils with bronze. So those are the things that you would use to um, take ashes off, take take meat off, take, part, take the carcass off after it was burned, whatever's left, and that's all made out of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze, and a net you shall make four bronze rings on, at its corners, and you shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar. So... Um, We'll look at that when we see the picture again. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be put through the rings so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it's carried. You'll see those poles. And you shall make it hollow with boards 
So hollow, it would be it would be lighter. Remember, it's meant to be transported. They had to carry it with them when they went. This wasn't, they didn't build a new one every time. They carried it with them when they went. And so in order to stabilize it, and also because, because earlier instructions from the Lord had said that you build an altar out of earth or uncut stones, when it was in place, it may have had, they may have filled it with stones or dirt. So it didn't move. Otherwise, it would, be, it would be hard to stabilize it when you're putting, for example, an ox on it. So, God is very specific about what he wants and the way that Israel is to worship. And part of that is this, this altar. And God tells, tells Moses, As it has been shown to you on the mountain, so shall it be made. God's very specific about the way that, that Israel is to worship. Not to worship like other people worship. Not to worship like their surrounding people's worship. Worship the way that you're instructed to worship. Uh, and the altar was a big deal here. So today there's all kinds of movements out there to, to say like, well, you know, we can find different ways to worship. Right? We, can, we can worship... What matters is the way I like to worship is this, right? We should be really, really, really careful, if skeptical. We should have a red flag go up if somebody says, you know, this is the way somebody else worships their God. And I wonder if we could worship ours the same way. Um, that is not. God is very specific on how to worship, even in the New Testament, on what makes up a, wor- um, a worship service. So anyway, look here. Uh, you can see that this, this, this rendering is hollow. It's got a grate in it, and it's got poles to carry it. It's got things on the corners, upper, that are built in that kind of look like horns. Um, and so this is you know, one possible rendering for what that might look like. Then, with that said, then we, um, God moves on to, let's talk about the courtyard. So, verse 9. You shall make the court of the tabernacle. So this is what we've been talking about, around the outside. Um, on the south side, the court shall have hangings, or you could say something like curtains, um, of, of fine twined linen, 100 cubits long, that's 150 feet, remember. It's 20 pillars, and their 20 bases shall be of bronze, and the hooks of the pillars and their uh, fillets shall be of silver. Fillets probably something that, that attaches those, those curtains or those hangings to the posts. And this is, says the north side is the same, right? And for the breadth of the court, on the west side, there shall be hangings for 50 cubits. Okay, so the west side, um, left on your screen, it's 50 cubits, at 75 feet, uh, with 10 pillars and 10 bases. And so we've seen the, the, the north and the south and the west side. Haven't seen the east side yet. Uh, that's coming next. So the, the breadth of the court... On the front, to the east, shall be 
50 cubits. So it's just like same length as, as the west side. And the hangings for one side of the great gate shall be 15 cubits. The other side, uh, with their three pillars and bases, the other side of the hangings shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and bases. So 15, 15, that's 30. That leaves 20 left over for the, the gateway. And for the gate of the court, there shall be a screen 20 cubits long. So that's 30 feet. It's a big opening. People can go through it of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twisted linen embroidered with needlework. It shall have four pillars with them four and with them four bases. All the pillars around the court shall be filleted with silver. Their hooks shall be of silver and their bases of bronze. So in these next couple of verses after this one too, you'll see what these things are to be made of. The length of the court shall be 100 cubits, breadth of 50, height of 5 cubits. So that's 7.5 feet tall, right? So the outer border is 7.5 feet tall. With hangings of fine twisted linen and bases of bronze and all the utensils of the tabernacle for every use and all its pegs and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. So the last part, the last couple verses, is the oil for the lamp. You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light. So notice who this is to. All of Israel is supposed to bring it. Um, They probably have some from Egypt. Uh, They probably don't have any olive oil by Mount Sinai and in many places that they went. So they're probably bringing it from Egypt. So olive is a really good oil. And beaten pure olive oil is is really good. This would be the kind of stuff you would use for cooking, not for burning um, normally. Um, But olive oil like this would burn brighter. And also it would burn cleaner, so there would be less smoke. Um, And so, again, this is not for anointing or anything like that. This is for the the lampstand that's in the holy place. This is for the menorah. Uh, Candles were not yet invented. Um, And so it was just oil that was in those lamps. And, And then it says that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn. You shall command the people. So you're going to, it's going to be set up continually, actually, at least at night. Uh, the priests were to see to that. And, the t- and in the tent of meeting, so this is the first time that, this, that the tent, the tabernacle, is called the tent of meeting. Um, but it's re- called that regularly from here because that's where God meets with Moses originally. And then he says that he meets with the people at the entrance of the tent of, of meeting. So that's why it's called the tent of meeting because God meets with Moses there and then he meets at the entrance of it, so the outside of it with the people of Israel. Because remember, they can't go in. They cannot go in the tabernacle. So, and Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening until morning before the Lord. So they're keeping that lampstand going. Um, and it shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by all the people. So, those are the parts of Exodus 27, and we're going to go back, as I mentioned, to 
the bronze altar, to where we began. So back to verse 1, where it said this. And you shall make the altar. Again, this is the first thing that you're going to see when you come in the courtyard. And it is a place for sacrifices. So many of us have some kind of an agricultural background. Not everybody here, I'm sure. But some do. And some of us have seen what happens when you slaughter an animal. Um, And it's not really very pretty, right? It's a bloody experience. Um, And this is what happened regularly. Front and center, right in the entrance of meeting, going on a long time. Every day being used, several times a day being used. And so why? Why is this the first thing that you see when you enter the courtyard? Well, the easy answer is it's because of our sin, right? And we're all familiar with the sacrifices that are... That, that it's necessary for sin because God is holy and we can't approach him unless he deals with our sin somehow. And, and we know from Hebrews, we're familiar with this passage, it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So it is a constant reminder in front of everyone when they walk in that place of our condition with sin and how holy God is. But we also know this, that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. That's also from Hebrews. All these quotes I'm going to give you from Hebrews are from Hebrews 9 and 10. And yet, there's the altar front and center, and there's a priest offering service day after day, standing there repeating the same sacrifices over and over and over again, which can never take away sins. That's what the priest is doing. Offering sacrifices day after day repeatedly that are never able to take away sins. Why? Well, we know, looking from this direction, that it is because they are meant to point us to Christ. And again, from Hebrews, as the last quote, for by a single offering... Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. With that one offering that all of these sacrifices beforehand are pointing to, and where there is forgiveness of sins and lawless deeds, there is no longer any offering for sin. In other words, there is no need for those to go on once Christ was there. But until Christ was there, they had to point us to Christ. Now I mentioned that that there were at the altar there were many kinds of sacrifices. They were not all 
sin offerings. They were not all guilt offerings. They were not all day of atonement offerings. They were not all meant for that. Some of these reminders, some of these um, sacrifices would be like, okay, so bring us the firstborn of your flock. So, so bring, us, bring us the best of your grain. Why? Well, to remind us of this. To remind us of things like this. God owns everything. We don't own anything. God, anything that we have, we've been given. Right? And so it all belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. He owns it all, and this reminds us of that. So, so just think about that, what that does when we think about ourselves and, and the pride that we tend to accumulate. If it all belongs to God, well, that's, that's humbling. That is, that kind of makes us thankful. That makes us worship. That's what it does. So all of these other sacrifices that weren't sin offerings also serve that purpose. To, to point us in a right relationship with God, to, make, to understand who we are and who he is, that he, it's him. He is the one in charge of everything. How great he is, how holy he is, how different he is from us, how unapproachable he is, unless he makes a way, which he did with the perfect sacrifice. So that, that, that hymn or that song we sang this morning, the, the chorus goes like this. O come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with The precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's why. That's what the altar was for. So, those other sacrifices, though, what what are they about? What they're they're not offered anymore. What were they? What were they about? Well, the New Testament doesn't stop talking about sacrifices. It's, it talks about the end to, of a sacrifice for sin that Christ provides. There's no need for that ever to go on before. There, there are several examples that I'm sure that, that if you started thinking about it, you'd think, oh, yeah, Paul mentions sacrifice. Like, like, here's one of them. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So, so what does that mean anyway? I mean, we're used to thinking of faith as being, faith is something internal. What does it mean to present your body as a living sacrifice? Well, first of all, I don't know if you caught it. I'll, I'll read the end of it again. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It doesn't say it's your salvation. It's a result of your salvation. That What we do is present our, we offer up our bodies 
um, to God. Living. So what are the implications of that? Well, one of the implications... Here's what they're not. They're, They're not that, you know, I'm a sovereign citizen. They are not that, as my friend and I used to joke with each other about, you know, you have to do what's right for you. You could just phrase that, you have to do what's right in your own eyes. Which we, which we know what God thinks of that. It doesn't mean we have bodily autonomy. You know, that's a term that is used over and over and over and over again now. Um, I was reading something a while back, and it used that term from quite a while ago. It, it was written. This isn't a new idea, in, in, in other words. Pastor Randy this morning talked about what are we listening to, right? What, are, what stories are we listening to? This idea to think that you have bodily autonomy has gone back a long ways, and they make an intermittent in, um, little steps to try to get you to think that way all along. Incremental, that's the word. Incremental steps to make you think that you have bodily autonomy. A Christian doesn't have bodily autonomy. We've been bought with a price. We are not our own. It's not my body, my choice. It's not when I get to the end of my life and say, you know what, I did it my way. That worship song where Frank Sinatra worships himself. Right? I did it my way. So all of those kinds of things are covering for immorality, and we all we know, and they have a bigger influence on us than we think they do. Just you know, th- this is something that gets talked about quite regularly. Just look at the look at Christians' divorce rate and living together, and and all kinds of things as related to non-Christians. It's just not that much different. It is having a huge impact. And and so here's the question. If we were presenting our bodies as living sacrifices, could that happen? That could not happen. So it certainly includes things like you've been bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. It, It certainly means you are not your own, that everything I have Everything that I own, all that I am, belongs to God, right? And God decides what you do with your body. His word decides what you do with your body. And that is humbling, right? That is something that makes us thankful. That is something that makes us worship how great God is. So... Presenting your body as a living sacrifice, and I'm sure that we all you know, know that, have heard that from Romans 12.1, but it sounds an awful lot like um, this other passage that we know really, really well, that we maybe don't think about it in the same way, is in 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 18, where it says this. Flee from sexual immorality. For every other sin a person commits is outside the body. 
But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within whom you, whom you have from God? So, and you are not your own. So, I mean, usually when we think, we, we like that passage, we're a temple of the Holy Spirit. What's the context? The context is, so flee immorality. Get away from immorality. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Well, well, that's, that's what that means. Right? That's how we present our bodies as a li- living sacrifice. Is that we do it the way that God wants us to do it. We, we live the way he wants us to live. We don't live the way we want to live. So the altar is a big deal, and it's a major part in worship. Sacrifices are a big deal, a major part of worship, and they have been since the garden. And they still are today. It is a big deal the way we think about Exodus and how it has been brought into the New Testament and, and how it what it how it matters to us today. So let's close in prayer and then we'll have our our final hymn. Father, we thank you again for your word and thank you so much for your son. The precious blood of Jesus Christ that we can come to the altar and your arms are open wide. Forgiveness. Thank you for your, your mercy and your grace to us. In Jesus' name, amen.